Pennsylvanians took part in primary elections last week. The first step in electing a U.S. Senator, 18 members of Congress, a governor, the entire state house, and half of the state Senate. And for many voters, along with the usual tug of civic duty, this election day brought with it an unusual sense of urgency. Let's hear from a sampling of citizens who showed up at the polls in the Fairmount section of Philadelphia. Um, so uh, what's your name and where do you live? Uh, Victoria Sabucci, and I live right here in the neighborhood in Fairmount. I'm very energized as a Democrat. I'm really hoping to, in the midterms that we turn over the House. I always vote. I think it's very important. It's your civic duty to vote, and if you don't vote, you can't complain. Uh, my name is Erica, and I live uh, in the Fairmount neighborhood. I think people don't give enough you know, um, attention to the primary races, and so I think it's important to come out and make sure that we have strong numbers for the primaries, that we have good candidates coming November. Dave Sneeringer, I live uh, down the street here at North 22nd Street. I'm pretty anti-Trump. Everything that he stands for is pretty much, or everything that he does is pretty much everything that I'm against. It's like I say, you know, uh, like the governor's race, Tom Wolf, he's pretty much anti-Trump. So I, I just wanted to support those people. My name's Ellen Napier and I live in the Fairmount neighborhood. I think that there is a large portion of our population who don't vote for various reasons, but I feel like there's different alternatives besides the two sides, the two parties that we see, and the more we can get out and use our votes to show that, um, the more proud of our government we can be. As you can detect in those voices, many who voted last week did so with this question at the front of their minds. I'm doing my part, but will it make the big difference I'm hoping it might? I'm Chris Citullo, and this is 20 by 70, the podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia and from democracy. It's already been a tumultuous, dizzying political year in Pennsylvania. The state's old crazy quilt congressional map got thrown out by the state Supreme Court spawning confusion, discord, and Democratic hopes of Pennsylvania becoming the key to a takeover of the United States House. Five of the state's 18 members of Congress decided not to seek re-election, three due to scandal, one thanks to the new map, and one in part because being a moderate in today's Congress is a hard road to travel. All this, of course, occurred against the equally tumultuous, dizzying backdrop of national politics. And in this first national election year of the Me Too era, Pennsylvania saw an unprecedented wave of women running for office and sometimes winning their party's nod. But in the end, will all this make a huge difference? Will it produce a sea change or just a shuffling of the deck chairs? Is Pennsylvania poised for real reform in how its politics and government occur? Or will the pull of the same old, same old prove too powerful? David Thornburg, president and CEO of the Committee of 70, got a chance recently to talk these matters over with columnist John Baer of the Philadelphia Media Network. Let's listen in. Hey, John, how are you? Just a little background a little background on John. He is a veteran observer of the Harrisburg scene, uh, currently with some combination of the Inquirer, Daily News, and Philly.com, previously with Harrisburg Patriot. And, uh, John, uh, I think it's quite... Um, meaningful that your journalistic career began 
the same month of the Watergate break-ins in 1972. So uh, clearly you... It was a good time to start. That's you know, right. you get, uh, you know, birth, uh, birth by water. Yeah. Quick plug for John. He's also the author of a terrific book on Pennsylvania politics. And there aren't many p- terrific books on Pennsylvania politics called On the Front Lines of Pennsylvania's Politics, 25 Years of Keystone Reporting. So glad to have you with us. Glad to be here. So uh, about a week ago, uh, we had uh, a few primary elections in Pennsylvania. Um, Just interested in your takeaways on uh, that primary, particularly as it relates to two things. One is uh, the state of uh, things, all all things political in Philadelphia, and and also on the prospects for uh, reform of the type that you and I have talked about over the months and years. Well, on all things political in Philadelphia, um, the most depressing thing, David, both for you and I, was the turnout level. Um, I'm sure you feel, as I do, that when you do what we do for decades and you see a turnout level that's below 20 percent, it kind of of makes you wonder if you should be out selling Toyotas instead. Uh, So so that's a little depressing. Um, On the uplifting side, there seemed to be at least some evidence of newbies uh, involved, which is always a good thing in a political structure and a political system that kind of gets stale and old and repetitive. So when you had uh, machine or former machine people go down, such as uh, the incumbent governor, Lieutenant Governor Mike Stack, uh, when you had uh, uh, a person who beat the machine before in, uh, in the Northwest, um, Representative Chris Rabb, uh, get reelected, those are good signs. When you have a newcomer uh, like Fiedler in the South, uh, uh, in South Philly, that's a good sign. Um, so I think there is, and you and I have had this discussion, there are elements of change yep. that bring at least a little sliver of sunlight into our otherwise futile and drab efforts. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we actually uh, did a little podcast tour of the significant open seats in the legislature. This was uh, the seat that Bill Keller held, held for a long time, John Taylor held for a long time, and Curtis Thomas held for a long time. And I figured collectively those folks were taking with them on their exit 87 years of tenure. Um, So the other side of this is now we're starting afresh with what we hope are high quality uh, representatives. But talk about how important tenure and standing is in in Harrisburg as as a component of how you get things done. Well, it's very much like the Congress, David, as you know. I mean, the longer you are here, the more influence you are likely to have. And, uh, and people who arrive here fresh and idealistic um, often leave before they have that kind of tenure because it really, there really is a great amount of control at the top and particularly among committees. And committees have often deferred to seniority. And so the, the, the duration thing is both good and bad. Uh, it can be good if you are from a region that has longstanding lawmakers who have reached the pinnacle and are heads of committees that can help your region, or it can work against you. For years, Philadelphia had people right. in very powerful positions. And so whenever something bad was going to happen to Philadelphia, 
the full legislative leadership had to go through those people, and, and often the worst was sort of averted. Yeah. Um, we're now at a place where Philadelphia in the legislature does not have a lot of clout or authority. But that could be that could change as as these new newer people and younger people, uh, some who have been here now for a term or two, others who are now coming, if they stay with it, if they keep keep the faith, as it were, um, y- you know who knows that could, that could get better for the city of yeah. Philadelphia. So let's. L- and the y- other thing, David, if I if I could just mention um, one bright spot was in Brooks County, there was a a woman elected in a special election, Helen Ty, um, who became the 42nd woman uh, in our legislature, because it was a special, she takes office uh, soon. And that, believe it or not, broke us out of the teens uh, in terms of <laughs> It's about 18 percent, wasn't it? Right now it's 20. Yeah. Um, so uh, suddenly we're above Alabama and Mississippi and, you know... <laughs> I mean, well, you have to celebrate still, small still, victories when you can. That's exactly right. We're still among the worst, but we're making a climb. Yeah. So back to uh, the dynamic we were just talking about. You mentioned Elizabeth Fiedler, who we should point out won the Democratic primary and still has to face a Republican challenger. But right. as more than one folks have pointed out here at, at Berkeley by the Delaware, uh, in all likelihood, she'll uh, uh, be elected to the state house. So uh, what what kind of as a longtime observer of the scene in Harrisburg, what advice would you have for someone like Elizabeth Fiedler, uh, Fiedler who's showing up fresh-faced and eager uh, to the Emerald City uh, and hoping to get something done? How, how would you uh, uh, advise her to break in uh, to, the, to the system in an effective way? Well, the first thing that she or any new, uh, especially Democratic lawmaker, should do is reach across the aisle. I mean, uh, despite a projected Democratic wave, I still believe the legislature will remain under Republican control, both in the House and the Senate. And if you're going to get things done, if you're going to get bills and resolutions that you believe in and that you think are good for your city and state, you're going to have to work with Republicans. So break away from the clique, break away from your delegation, and get to know and meet the people who can help make that happen. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. She is actually uh, originally from Bloomsburg, and I happened to be driving past Bloomsburg yesterday. The only town in Pennsylvania. Yeah. (laughs) And I was thinking, uh, you know, she might do well to revisit her Bloomsburg roots and, you know, her old elementary school teacher or the, you know, the dry cleaner down the street or whatever, just to give her a little cred uh, in the process. So, John, one of the more intriguing proposals that's bounced around is the idea of shrinking the size of the House and maybe even the Senate to more manageable proportions. Folks that... Folks have suggested legislature's too big, too unruly, too expensive, uh, make it more compact, easier to get stuff done. What's your take on the, uh, the possibilities for that uh, taking hold? I've long advocated. I think it's a, it's a great idea. It would at least signal to a, a very suspect public that this institution has some respect for it and is interested in not only saving a lot of money, but in, in making itself more efficient. Uh, but it's also, David, often used as a campaign year gimmick so that yeah. one chamber will pass it and everybody in that chamber can say, see, we're, we're trying, 
but the other chamber won't let go. Yeah. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, I mean, there isn't any real reason to shrink the Senate. The Senate has 50 members. My answer has always been one chamber, unicameral, 67, one for each county. Nebraska. Doesn't Nebraska have only one chamber? It, it does. It's the, only, it's the only legislature in America. First Nebraska, uh, we, then Pennsylvania. That's, that's right. Yeah. Hey, one other thing. Uh, uh, the majority leader, Dave Reed, who the, has announced his retirement, signals his intention a couple of weeks ago to introduce some legislation, A, to open primaries to independents, uh, B, to... Uh, term limit uh, committee chairs, I think maybe that was directed to uh, Daryl Metcalf. Um, and one other piece which eludes me right now, but maybe you can remember that. And I'm just curious what you think is going on there. Is this for real well, or I is think this an exit uh, uh, a message on his way out? Yeah, that was my first question uh, is, you know, you, you've been there for a while. Where ha- where have you been on this before? It's It's always a little suspect when you see a leader who is leaving comes up with with reform ideas and w- why if you are opposed to those ideas what clout does that person have to sway you in another direction so i think an open primary is a great idea um, i think term limits on chairman uh, is a better one and um, I, I don't think either has any chance <laughs> on that happy note yeah um, so I was thinking about this as sort of, uh, you know, you and I have talked a number of times where sort of the shoe's been on the other foot. You ask me and I give you my opinion and here here we are the other way around. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a somewhat of a well-deserved reputation, reputation over the years for being maybe one of the toughest curmudgeons in Harrisburg uh, that, uh, you know, uh, nothing was possible according to John Bear. But having said that, it feels like there might have been some softening in your approach to the world uh, in recent years. And I was thinking a column, you've written a number of columns uh, recently about uh, John Bear's list of, of reforms, kind of good government reforms that uh, ought to be high time to, uh, to get enacted. So is there a thaw uh, in the uh, curmudgeonly approach to John Bear? And, and talk a little bit about those reforms that you think are way overdue. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that it's so much of a thaw. I mean, I still remain <laughs> You're still pretty, a journalist. Pretty, cynic, pretty cynical, <laughs> and and still a journalist. Um, but there ha- and, and and it's not that things here are changing. It's just that since the 2016 election, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, there has been a level of civic engagement that uh, I haven't seen in a long time. There seems to be. And it's just anecdotal, but it really feels from email and telephone calls that I get from average readers, not necessarily people who have followed or are involved in politics, who have a renewed interest in, in government at all levels. And when you, whenever you get anything like that going, then that can translate into direct pressure on the people who can, who can make reforms happen and who can, who can start moving some, some changes that, that, that the, our system could need. And, and the, the, the columns that you refer to, I did a series of columns uh, late last year that say that most people don't seem to connect the dots, that it isn't one thing, it isn't two things. It's a whole bunch of things that each impact each other, and, and they range from campaign finance. We're one of a minority of states where it's no holds barred. We have no limits on what you can spend and, and collect uh, as, a, as a candidate for state office. The wild, um, wild the, west, as some folks The wild, say. wild west, yeah. Uh, we're one of a very few states, seven, I think, that elect judges at all levels. And in a state 
as big and diverse as this geographically, demographically, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, voters don't know who these people running for appellate judges are on a statewide level, and uh, we just shouldn't be doing that. We ought to have a system of merit selection. Gerrymandering has, for the moment, David, taken care of itself, but the process remains in place. I mean, the new Amen. <laughs> congressional maps is are good. I mean, they're more they're they're more offer a chance for more representative government. But, I mean, the process comes back up again, as you know, in a couple of years. And there are a lot of efforts and a lot of push to replace having the politicians pick their voters rather than the other way around by creating a, an independent commission to draw the lines and draw the maps and kind of keep this level of at least semi-competitive, more than semi-competitive, very competitive races across the state. So th those are the kinds of things. Those are a few of the things. And, and there is some, you know, there is some hope, too. Um, there's a bill in the House that would create merit selection of judges statewide that is coming up next week. Um, it's House Bill 111, and um, a lot of work has gone into it, and as you know, for, for many, many years. Um, and I, I would, ironically, it, <laughs> Republicans are now very supportive of this. Yeah, how about that? Because they saw what happened with the election of three Democratic justices a few years back that created the Supreme Court, that drew the maps that they don't like. Yeah. So, so it might be revenge politics, but it, it, in my view, would be good for the state long term. Well, sometimes it, it takes that sort of a clear sense of the consequence of too much politics to bring people to, uh, to their senses. Uh, you mentioned uh, redistricting reform, uh, pushback on gerrymandering, obviously an issue that we've been involved in. And we've talked to you about the Draw the Lines project that Chris and I are launching uh, to right. open up that uh, process to thousands of Pennsylvanians and so forth. It's getting late in the season for the Fair District's push, again, one we're part of, to secure the first passage of a constitutional amendment to create a an independent citizens commission. But do you have any uh, uh, real-time handicapping of that uh, as we head into really the last month to make it happen? Yeah, I think it's going to be tough. I think that uh, with all of the emphasis on midterm elections and the politics that could trickle down into legislative elections, I think there's going to be a lot of focus on sort of saving your own backside at any and all cost. And that also, that always, anything having to do with changing the Constitution is always a heavy lift, as you know, because you have to go twice uh, th through the process, two successive sessions, and then a voter referendum. Yep. Um, there, there is clearly an emphasis on it. There's clearly a big push for it. But one of the key committee chairmen uh, who remains in place in the House State Government Committee is opposed to it, uh, Representative Darrell Metcalf from Western Pennsylvania. As long as he is the chairman of that committee, I, I don't see any signs that, that he will move that uh, legislation through his committee. Now, there are other efforts. There are ways that procedurally you can get it away from him. There has been a request by the Democratic leadership to refer all Democratic-sponsored bills, for example, to other committees. We haven't heard whether or not the House Republican leaders will do that. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a... It's kind of a Long odds, uh, possible, but long odds that that thing gets done in time to make the clock 
for the constitutional change. Well, we'll hope it's one of those things that doesn't look likely until it is. <laughs> right, yeah, and then right. you can look back and say, oh, yeah, I, I can oh, see yeah, that. Oh, yeah, we figured that we one out. We figured that <laughs> one out. Let me ask you one last question before we uh, jump off. Um, uh, everybody's trying to, everybody's looking at Pennsylvania, I think, productively and trying to read the political tea leaves here. Uh, this was uh, kind of the warm-up to the big event in November. Um, and one of the questions, of course, is blue wave, no no blue wave, moderate-sized, uh, you know, of gargantuan proportions. Is this a, a little roller or a, you know, 30-foot uh, giant? So <laughs> what's your prognostication on that question? I think there's going to be a clear wave in the southeast. I have I have doubts that it will spread across the rest of the state. Um, you know, if you look at our electoral map uh, and, in, and in any given cycle, there are really two two Pennsylvanias, and as a result, you will see, for example, Tom Wolf run two campaigns. Yeah. One in the southeast that goes against everything that the Trump administration stands for, and one in the rest of the state that promotes Tom Wolf. Yeah, and and uh, I guess this is either made better or worse by the fact that the uh, the media of which you have been a part for so long has splintered into so many different pieces. You can pick your message and pick your channel and pick your audience, and everybody hears something different. As I said, for better uh, or worse. That's right. Everything is so fragmented. Information is fragmented. Campaigns are fragmented. Everything is targeted. It's uh, it's very tough uh, for individuals to kind of slice through what's real, what's not, what's reliable, what's not, uh, in terms of both media and politics. Yep. Um, I've said we could save our country and the world if we would just close down the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> not to mention the newspaper industry. It's just a passing fad, this Internet thing. I don't, I don't think it <laughs> lasts. Hey, yeah. John Baer, thanks uh, for being with us, and we look forward to seeing you on the trail. David, my pleasure. Good to be with you. Okay, there you have it. Another episode of 20 by 70, another bid to explain the curious workings of democracy, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania style. We couldn't have done it without our great guest, John Baer of the Philadelphia Media Network. Also couldn't have happened without WXPN Public Radio in University City, which generously offered its studios to us while a usual home at Kelly Redder's house on the Penn campus is under renovation. And we certainly couldn't have done it without our intrepid producer, Joel Patterson. As always, we're grateful for the partnership and support of Young Involved Philadelphia, a terrific volunteer organization that's always finding new ways to keep younger Philadelphians informed, engaged, and ready to fall in love with their city. If you enjoy 20 by 70, please do us a favor. Like us, share us, tweet us. We appreciate that. So until next time, which will be in early June when we take a deeper look at the changing of the political guard in Philadelphia, we leave you with our usual advice. Expect more Philadelphia. August 1920, Mother Jones put out the call. To the hills of West Virginia came 13,000 strong. Riding loose the old special Boone County 